All right, let's get to the scripture. Let's turn to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is fiercely opposed to the Jews. He has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and they are angry at him, and they seek to kill him. Jesus will not only defend his action, but Jesus will claim that God the Father was working with him on the Sabbath to heal the man. And then Jesus proceeds to list four witnesses to his true identity. Number one, God the Father. Number two, John the Baptist. Number three, his works, his miracles. We looked at those last week. And then fourthly, the Scripture. So let's really take some time this morning and develop this fourth witness. Scripture witnesses to Jesus. Let's take up our reading with verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, two truths are immediately apparent, just reading down through that passage. First of all, the Scripture witnesses to Jesus. And secondly, the Jews do not understand the Scriptures, especially Moses. Let's clarify that second truth with an observation, lest we make an interpretational error. Did the Jews read the Scriptures? Christians sometimes treat the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day with this sort of contempt for failing to even read the Bible, the Old Testament. And friends, that is wrong. Many of them memorize vast portions of the Old Testament. And Jesus acknowledges that they did, in fact, search the Scripture. So the issue does not concern their failure to read the Scriptures. The issue concerned their misreading of the Scriptures. Let's make a second clarification. Back in verse 10 and in verse 18, John uses the term Jews, but he is using that term to refer to Jews who were hostile to Jesus, who in fact sought to kill him. But not all Jews rejected Jesus or sought to kill him. The disciples, in fact, were Jews. There were thousands upon thousands of Jews who embraced Christ in the early church. 
It was the Jewish leadership in particular, the scribes, the Sadducees, and Pharisees, that were so hostile toward Jesus. And in verse 39, Jesus seems to have in view those Jews who were the searchers, the teachers of the Mosaic Law. And verse 18 tells us very plainly, these Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And let's add then a third clarification. It is true that Jesus' own disciples also misunderstood the Scriptures. So it's not just the hostile Jews, it's also Jesus' disciples. But their misunderstanding never yielded to the kind of hostility that provoked attempts on Jesus' life. So with all that in mind, let's go back to the first truth. Here it is, the Scripture witnesses to Jesus. And that is our theme this morning. How does the Scripture witness to Jesus? Jesus says in verse 39, they, and he's referring to the Old Testament, they bear witness about me. How then do the Scriptures witness to Jesus? Well, at this point, let's cross-reference with a famous passage, Luke chapter 24, and seek to get a little more clarity on this question. Luke 24 actually offers an example, not of the hostile Jews, but of Jesus' own disciples misreading or misunderstanding the Scriptures. In Luke 24, Jesus has died and resurrected. Several women report the empty tomb to the incredulous apostles. And news of a possible resurrection spreads rapidly through the discipleship community. It is greeted with perplexity and doubt and astonishment. Verse 13 then introduces us to two confused disciples. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, some sort of supernatural intervention there, I suppose. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Well, clearly, these are disciples of Jesus Christ. They hope that he was the Redeemer. But they are dismayed and they are perplexed by reports of Jesus' possible resurrection. And you see that if you keep reading. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, 
They came back saying that they had been, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now at this point, we might be tempted to think these disciples are full-fledged believers. They've embraced the resurrection, but Jesus' response indicates they are full of confusion. Keep reading, verse 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus just chides them for their disbelief. They should have known that the Christ had to suffer and enter into his glory. But I wonder, would you have understood that? How would you have known? And notice what Luke says next. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus began at the beginning... Right At the beginning, he worked his way down through the prophets and showed them the entire Old Testament just pointed right to him. Jesus viewed the entire Old Testament as a witness to himself. And this is why, back in John's Gospel, Jesus can say, search the Scriptures. They point to me. They are my witness. Now, while we're here, locate the three alls in our passage. In verse 25, Jesus refers to all that the prophets have spoken. In verse 27, Luke references all the prophets. And then Luke refers to all the scriptures. Friends, these are, these are comprehensive statements. Jesus is the destiny of the entire Old Testament. Now, I want us all to answer a question honestly. Not that you would do otherwise. Have you ever read through the Old Testament and wondered about the validity of Jesus' statement? I mean, we know it's true because Jesus said it, right? But do we honestly understand it? How about all of those dietary regulations in the law? What do they have to do with Jesus? How about Joshua's conquest of Canaan? Or Jeremiah's lament over Jerusalem? Or Hosea's unfaithful wife? How do those stories point to Jesus? Even when we are told by Jesus, the whole Testament points to him, sometimes it is still difficult to see it, is it not? I really wish I could just, you know, develop this, but it would probably take a whole sermon series. But I do want to at least take a stab at it this morning. We have to recognize that Jesus does indeed view himself as the destiny of all those stories, all those genres, all those types, all those predictive prophecies, all those allusions, all those statutes, and all the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi or from Genesis to Chronicles, because that's how the Old Testament believers read the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Him. 
But do we really just grasp this even in hindsight? Let me just probe this question a little further with an illustration that might actually get me kicked to the curb in some churches. I hope not here. I grew up in a staunchly dispensational context where I was taught over and over and over again from Sunday school through some seminary classes that the foremost principle of biblical interpretation is the literal interpretation. You've probably heard that. The grammatical, historical, literal interpretation. I mean, that's it. You start right there. That principle is foundational to dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. If you waver on grammatical, historical interpretation, you have compromised the gospel or fundamentalism or biblical inerrancy or the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was like that strong. The key to every passage, as I was taught, is to interpret it as literally as possible. There was a famous line that went, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. How many heard that? Right? Anyone here? Okay, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. All right? But I want to know why. I mean, where does the Bible insist on that principle? Why should we limit God to a single genre when we don't do that for any other author? All right, now I better hasten to clarify that I happen to believe the grammatical historical interpretation is really quite crucial much of the time. All right, at times it really is just extremely important, all right? All right, so don't, don't mishear me, anybody. But I happen to believe that there is a more foundational starting point when it comes to interpreting the scripture, a more important hermeneutical principle, and here it is. Follow the interpretational example of Jesus Christ. Follow the interpretational example of Jesus and the apostles. I mean, can you think of a better place to begin? I mean, why not start right there? I mean, if Jesus interpreted the Old Testament, why not follow his example? So how did Jesus interpret the scriptures? And how did he teach his apostles to interpret the scriptures? Friends, I cannot think of a more important question to ask when setting about to interpret my Bible. How did Jesus interpret this? Well, friends, where did Jesus begin? Jesus assumed the Scriptures were all about Him. That's where He began. Went back to Moses, all through the prophets, it really is about me. And if I can digress just a little bit further, this is why I am, I am quite opposed to modern interpreters who seem to discover the Antichrist in all the Scriptures. They view the entire Scripture as some sort of sinister, satanic plot to rule the world. And I, I really think that we need to do quite the opposite. Look for Christ and the victory of God that was promised in the Old Testament that was accomplished in the Gospels, and that is fully realized by the time you reach the end of the New Testament. Look for Jesus Christ. In fact, did you know that the final book of the New Testament is quite literally called the Apocalypse, or the unveiling, that's what the word means, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1 and verse 1. 
The unveiling of Jesus Christ. So if I said to you, open your Bible to the unveiling of Jesus Christ, you should all turn to Revelation 1 and verse 1. But if I understand Jesus correctly in verse 27, you could just as equally open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Because it is all an unveiling of Jesus Christ. So friends, let me just really, really encourage you to get out the shield of faith and just to hold it up against any interpretation that is going to lead you away from your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. To do otherwise, in the words of verse 25, is foolish. There is a foolishness in the Christian community today regarding how to interpret the Bible. And you can do it, you can, you can identify it easily enough if that interpretation just distracts you from your attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all that in place, let's return to John 5. With Jesus' own hermeneutic just fixed really clearly in our minds. If his own disciples were foolish, and the religious leaders were condemned for failing to see Christ in all the scriptures, we better make sure that we get it right. Again, in John 5, Jesus has no hesitations or qualifications about his own identity as the destiny of the Old Testament. He clearly says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And what happens when you fail to see Christ in the Old Testament? Keep reading, look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, to fail to find Christ in the Scripture is is to miss eternal life. You may read your Bible and think that you have eternal life, but that actually is impossible unless you embrace Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures. Now, to really get at what Jesus means, we actually have to not go forward in our text, but go backwards, backwards to verse 37 momentarily. In verses 37 through 39, Jesus is going to connect two witnesses, God the Father and the Scripture. Let's read verse 37 very carefully. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Question. If you want to hear the voice of the Father, where would you go? Answer? To the Scripture. I heard it. To the scripture, that is where God's voice is recorded hundreds and hundreds of times. That is where God spoke through the prophets. That is where we find a record of God speaking to Moses on Sinai and delivering his law. Now friends, verse 39, the Jews searched the scriptures. That's true. Nevertheless, Jesus says, you have never heard God's voice. That is astonishing. You can read your Bible without ever hearing the voice of God. 
You search the scripture and you've never heard his voice. That's what he said. And I just want to ask in your heart of hearts, how do you just how do you approach God's word? I don't mean do you read the Bible? I mean, do you read the words on that page as God's voice just speaking line by line by line? The Bible is not merely a trove of ancient curiosities to sort of stir the imagination of the historian. The Bible is not merely a law code for an ancient kingdom to supplement the reading of a law student. It's not merely the complex story of a rebellious people to delight the literature professor. The Bible, friends, is the voice of God. And you can read the Bible as a historian, a lawyer, or a literature professor and never hear the voice of God. Now Jesus proceeds to say of the Father in verse 37, His form you have never seen. Is that confusing? How precisely were they supposed to see the form of God? God commanded the Hebrews to put a perimeter around Mount Sinai lest anyone venture into his presence. God prohibited Jews from venturing into the Holy of Holies lest they be just instantly consumed. So how were the Jews supposed to see God's form? It's a fair question, is it not? And what's the answer? You know the answer, right? The answer is Jesus. Jesus was the living incarnation of the Word of God. That's the whole point of John 5. That was the whole point of Jesus' dialogue from verses 19 down through 29. To embrace Jesus is to embrace the very Father who sent Him. So friends, the Jews read the Bible, but they never heard the voice of God. And likewise, the Jews saw Jesus but they never recognized the form of God. And let me hasten to clarify, it wasn't merely the unbelieving Jews who really struggled with this. It was actually Christ's disciples. Later in John 14, we're going to come across a very important conversation between Jesus and Philip, but just listen to this conversation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How do you see the form? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Well, could anything be any clearer? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you have heard Jesus, you have heard the words of the Father. But what happens if you fail to embrace the incarnation? Well, verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. That is the outcome of rejecting Jesus Christ. You do not have the words of the Father. You've never heard Him. So again, verses 37 and 38 pressurize 
the statement that Jesus now makes in verse 39. The Jews read the Scriptures, verse 39, but they failed to see how the Scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be really careful that we don't make the same mistake, because obviously believers can. Philip made that mistake. And so, too, did the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So let me ask you a very important question. In what sense do the Scriptures witness to Jesus Christ? Because I hope that you read the first three quarters of your Bible, the Old Testament. In what sense does the Old Testament in particular witness to Christ? And I want to answer that question in two ways today. One way that you're probably familiar with, and one way that maybe you're not so familiar with, but it's really crucial. Most of us probably understand that the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ through elaborate patterns of foreshadowing, typology, and symbolism. The Old Testament anticipates the Incarnation. The sacrifices anticipate the ultimate sacrifice. The imperfect prophets, priests, and kings leave us anticipating a future perfect prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament prophecies anticipate the birth of a Savior in Bethlehem, the death of a suffering servant, and the reign of a coming king. It's all there. We're looking for him. The tabernacle, rich with symbolism, anticipates the future bodily dwelling of God among his people. And the operative word here is anticipate, right? When we read Luke 24, we do tend to focus on this sense of anticipation that just winds its way right through the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you you should have seen me coming if you're reading the Old Testament. You should have seen my death and my exaltation if you're reading the Old Testament. You should have anticipated all this, but you didn't. All right? So that's the first sense. But there is a crucial Second sense in which the Scripture witnesses to Jesus. All right? And I'm not sure that all Christians really appreciate this. And it's the second sense, and maybe we should call it the primary sense. I don't know. You can judge. But it's the second sense that Jesus is really concerned with in verses 37 through 39, and indeed the broader context of John chapter 5, in which he defends his relationship with the Father. The Scripture witnesses to Jesus because everything that it reveals about God the Father, it equally reveals about Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything that it reveals about God the Father, it equally reveals about Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament does not merely anticipate a future Christ. It reveals the Son who is one with the Father. The operative word here is reveal or revelation. The Old Testament is revelation. It's the revelation of God. And if you want to know who this Jesus of Nazareth is in John 5, well, just read the whole Old Testament. And everything that it says about God is a revelation of His identity. That is to say that if we have been listening to the voice of God, and we have been looking for His form, we should instantly recognize Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, listen to this. For unto us a child is born. And what is His name? 
He shall be called the everlasting Father. They are one and the same. Everything the Scriptures reveal about God, they reveal about Jesus. And that's why Jesus can claim the witness of the entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi or Genesis to Chronicles. He is the God of the Old Testament, one with the Father. Now let me add a quick clarification because we are not modalist. All right? Ontologically, I know it's a big word, ontologically, Jesus is a distinct person from the Father. That is true. But Jesus is equally one with the Father in His divine nature. They both participate in the nature of God. One God and three persons. That's the historic formulation of a trinity that I will not develop at this point. All right? I don't, want, I don't want you thinking, oh, Jesus and God are conflated, so they're one person. Not at all. All right? Jesus and God the Father, I should say. All right? They're distinct persons, but Jesus and God the Father are equally God. Now, all this means that Jesus' voice is the voice of Yahweh that we have been listening to from Genesis all the way through Malachi. It means that if God the Father came in a human body, He would look just like Jesus. In the words of verse 37, to hear Jesus is to hear the voice of God. To embrace the incarnation is to embrace the form of God. Listen to what Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. All the scripture does indeed point to Jesus Christ because Jesus is one with the Father. And that really is the argument Jesus is making all the way through John 5. It's not just a matter of anticipation, it's a matter of if you read that, you should understand exactly who I am. All right, so let's review. There are two senses in which the Old Testament is a witness to Jesus. First of all, the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ. And to put a really fine point on it, the Old Testament anticipates the incarnation of Jesus. But secondly, the Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus Christ just as it is a revelation of God the Father because they are one and the same, members of the Godhead. Now, with all that in place, let's take a remaining time and turn to the problem of the Jews in verse 40. Jesus says of these Jews, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Jews refuse to embrace Jesus as the God of the Old Testament. And how do we account for this tragic circumstance? Well, Jesus' explanation is going to come in the following verses. And let me just sort of summarize what he's going to say. Jesus says, I am not looking for human praise. But you all are looking for human praise. And that's why you cannot recognize me. That's what Jesus is saying in the following verses. But let's see if we can sort of sort this out. All right? Would you notice in verses 41 and 44... Two phrases. The phrase, receive glory. 
Jesus in verse 41 says, I do not receive glory from people. The Jews, on the other hand, verse 44, receive glory from one another. And it's really those two statements that are the key to understanding Jesus' commentary. To receive glory is to receive praise. But we have to clarify, doesn't Jesus receive glory from people? Didn't we worship him this morning in song? Look back at what Jesus said in verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, clearly, Jesus does receive glory and praise from people. So what does he mean when he says, I do not receive glory from people? Friends, here's what he means. Jesus is saying, I I do not require human approval. I mean, certainly he's worthy of it. But he doesn't need it the way that we pridefully crave human praise. Jesus does not need human approval. Well, why not? Because he already has divine approval. And that becomes clear at the end of verse 44. Jesus refers to the glory that comes from the only God. He's got that approval. He doesn't need human praise. And Jesus will express a very similar sentiment back in verse 33. Look at it. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And Jesus gladly claimed John as a witness. But then he clarified, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus does not require any kind of human authentication whatsoever. Jesus didn't like figure out he was God because he heard John preach one day. That's not what happened. All right, He doesn't need human approval. So Jesus has no interest in receiving glory or praise from people who are only interested in congratulating themselves. That's really what he's saying. And why not? Verse 42... Here's why. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus needs no approval from people who don't even love God. If Jesus is God, why would he receive glory from people who don't even love God? Of course he doesn't want that. And in verse 43, he states the problem again. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You have rejected the true Son from the Father, and you have accepted imposters. So again, why would Jesus, the true God, the true Christ, receive glory from those who come in their own names? That doesn't make any sense. Of course not. Jesus is not interested in the kind of praise that comes from people who hate God. He's not interested in the kinds of praise that comes from people who just heap up false Christ. I've mentioned this before, but in the history of Israel, from the time of Judas Maccabeus in the 160s B.C. to the end of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 134 A.D., there were an astonishing, an astonishing number of false Christs who came along. Jewish theologian and historian Hillel Silver writes, the first century, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, that's Jesus' time, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. Ines Schreckenberg, a Jewish historian and scholar, gives a whole list of would-be messiahs in the post-Herodian pre-AD 70 period. That's Jesus' time. His list includes Justice, the son of Ezekias, Simon of Perea, Athronges, Judas of Galilee, Thutis, 
an Egyptian false prophet, quote, the imposter, an unnamed group of religious enthusiasts, Menahem, the son of Judas of Galilee, Simon Bar-Giora, John of Gishgala, the Samaritan Messiah, and Jonathan the Weaver, and I'm only naming some of them. All these false Christs, lots of them in the first century. And John himself will elsewhere warn of reader, his readers against the coming of false Christ. His word for them is Antichrist. Watch out for them. So with so many false Christ running around Israel, how would I know that you have truly embraced the true Christ? How would I know I have the right one? And Jesus' answer in verse 43 is that he indeed came in his Father's name. That's how you know He came in his Father's name. So think about everything that we know about God in the Old Testament. If God the Father were to show up in a human body, what would he say? What would he do? How would he act? What sorts of miracles would he perform? We spent a long time last week looking at those miracles. What kind of miracles would God the Father do? Answer, look at Jesus. That's how you know. The Scripture witnesses to Jesus as the Father witnesses to Jesus. But these Jews, embracing all their false messiahs, are not willing to look at Jesus. And why not? Why not? Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's the problem. The Jews were obsessed with winning accolades from one another, patting each other on the back. In fact, they were so bent on everyone else's praise, they did not even notice the glorious revelation of God. He just showed up right there in their midst. They can't hear his voice. They can't see his form. They are too busy tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin. They are too busy regulating the Sabbath to make sure nobody violates their laws. They are too busy obsessing over their laws and flaunting their self-righteousness that they couldn't even hear the voice of God when it spoke to them through the lips of Jesus Christ. So friends, can we just, can we just really apply this? Can we become so focused on keeping up Christian appearances that we wouldn't even recognize Jesus if He just walked into our churches, our schools, our institutions, our pastors' networks, our conferences? Would we even recognize Him? Can we become so focused on all the externals in the words of verse 42 that the love of God isn't even dwelling in us? I mean, this, this is a problem not just for the hostile Jews. This is a problem for Jesus' own disciples. Friends, we have to be ever vigilant against an inclination toward legalism. A legalism that measures everyone else against my standard. That just flaunts my obedience. That goes looking for the praise of men. We've got to be just very, very careful about receiving glory from one another. Be very careful about flaunting your standards of holiness while putting down other Christians. Try to build up your faith by putting everybody else down. And I do want to be cautious. Because I think we might have a tendency to go to some sort of other extreme. I do believe it is appropriate to have personal standards and convictions. You ought to. 
By all means, only a naive Christian would jettison all personal convictions. All right? So that's not where I'm going. If that's what you're hearing, that's not where I'm going. Only a naive Christian would say, I don't need any convictions whatsoever. That is not scriptural. We should all seek to have biblically derived convictions. But my point is, the minute these convictions become a means of just receiving glory from other people, right? Receiving the praise of men, you have lost sight of Christ and you have slipped into sinful legalism. And there are some Christian groups and even pastors' fellowships that I personally am uncomfortable joining because it just seems like there's a great deal of emphasis on their uniqueness, their holiness, their obedience, their separation from everybody else. That's what makes us so wonderful. And I'm thinking, really? I mean, okay, I, I, I understand. I understand how you're getting there, but is, are you looking for the praise of other people? We've got to be really very careful and very guarded against slipping back into any mentality that Jesus warns us against here. In verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Friends, if I'm interpreting that correctly, I have, I have to avoid any posture of self-congratulation, self-adulation, or self-glorifying that just, that builds up my spirituality by putting others down. God's approval is what matters. That's what matters. Does God approve you? Does God approve your convictions and your standards? That's what matters. Not what does my brother over here approve of. What does God approve of? Let your standards, your convictions be approved by God. That's what matters. Now, friends, here is the painfully, the painful truth that the legalist must embrace. The law that he glories in actually condemns him. And that is the message of verses 45 through 47. Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses. Moses, the lawgiver, on whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Essentially, Jesus is claiming, I don't even have to condemn you to God. Why? The law that Moses wrote, and the law that you have so much confidence in, it actually accuses you. The law, friends, was never designed to be an end in itself. Don't go around thinking, well, I keep all the laws, and now I'm holy. Just look at me, everyone. By the way, the law is not a means of perfecting your justification or your sanctification. So don't think I keep all the laws, look at me, everyone. Well, when, when they look at you, all right, that's the glory that comes from one another, verse 44. That's your praise. You got it. You're not seeking God's glory at all. You've got the approval of men. And Jesus, friends, is just going to take this whole approach and just turn it on its head. Just like the rest of the Old Testament, Moses' writings, all those laws point beyond themselves to Jesus Christ. If you read through the law and your takeaway is, hey, I can keep all these laws and please God like the rich young ruler, you have badly missed the point. Moses was actually pointing you to Jesus Christ. You ought to reach the end of the law and go off immediately looking for a substitute because you can't do that. And that was Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus took all that law and he intensified it. He internalized it. And he effectively made the whole thing totally impossible. Completely impossible. You have always heard that you can't commit adultery. Oh, I've never done that. But I say unto you, you can't even have a lustful thought in your heart. Oh. That's where Moses was going. I see. You've always heard that you cannot murder. I've never murdered. But I tell you, you can't even harbor an inkling of hatred in your heart toward your brother. Oh. Yeah, I think I might need a substitute. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to get into heaven. Well, how would you exceed a Pharisee? And Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect. Just as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. That, that is what the law demands. And so what I need to find is a perfect substitute like the Father in heaven. His name is Jesus. So friends, can we just all just bring this together to just a really fine point of application? John 5, which we're going to be moving beyond next week, and I'm really going to miss John 5. I'm really, a number of you have just said John 5 has really just been a great blessing. I'm very grateful for that. But John 5 is this clear passage anywhere in the gospel concerning Jesus' true identity. This, this, this needs to be a go-to passage for you all. All right? Jesus just boldly asserts that he is one with the Father. And Jesus also gives us four witnesses to his identity. And today we have really developed that fourth witness. So here's the application. Just, friends, just search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures diligently listening for the voice of God. Search the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. And from Matthew to the unveiling of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Friends, when you search the Scriptures, look for Jesus. And listen to the voice of Jesus when you listen to the voice of God. And seek to be transformed into His image and likeness. The Bible was not written to make you holy independently of Jesus Christ. The Bible was written so that sinners like us might be made holy through our union with Jesus Christ.